Once again, we have the opportunity to remember the Christmas story, and I don't know if this has been a good year or a bad year, a good Christmas or a bad Christmas for you. I, I, I feel just behind on life and everything else, and I feel very much like I'm not ready for tomorrow to be Christmas. Um, it's a little bit stressful to think about that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you feel the same. I've talked to others who felt like this has just been a different kind of Christmas, a different feeling to this year. And uh, I, I know that what God would have us do is look to Him at this time. And so I'm very thankful for all of you who could join us and, and spend Christmas Eve together. Well, I think, at least for me, oftentimes the story of the Bible can seem larger than life. There's so many heroes and villains that almost border on fantastic and mythical. And I know that sometimes that's the accusation, is that the Bible is right up there with myths like Hercules and Zeus and, and all of the Roman gods and all of the other pagan gods. And while, yes, every believer must read the Scripture embracing that there are extraordinary and supernatural things that happen within these pages, for the most part, those spectacular and grand feats of faith are the exceptions and not the rule, meaning that it can seem like God only favors or looks upon those who are amazing, who, who dare to go into the unknown by faith and, and preach in jungles and deserts and leave everyone and everything behind to follow Christ. And yet, the Bible is full of very ordinary people. Almost all of them are, really, when you look into it. And I think this is great encouragement and good news to find that Christmas, in a lot of ways, is full of very ordinary people. People like you and me, who, for the most part, here we are, we we work and we commute. We do mundane things like grocery shop and, and clip our fingernails and sit in traffic. And again, if you're like me, Christmas just hits you with that feeling again of, of being inadequate. Of, I mean, I feel inadequate in almost every way in terms of time management, finances, patience, thoughtfulness, space in my house, health. I just feel inadequate this year. But that's kind of how I feel all the time. That's normal. I'm just ordinary. And if you're like me, I hope, normal and, and, and just average and ordinary, I think a lot of times, how can God use me? What am I doing? How am I supposed to serve the Lord? And that's why I think, again, it's encouraging to think that everything about the Christmas story is both extraordinary and yet dignifies the ordinary. The first thing I, I want you to see is that Jesus was born to ordinary people. And we just read in both Matthew and Luke. The reason we read both of those accounts is because they tell us the Christmas story from Joseph's point of view. And we see the Christmas story from Mary's point of view. And when you look at it, they are just normal people. You don't get any backstory. You don't get any the only thing you know about them in terms of a backstory is that they are of David's lineage, King David. But that has meant nothing for 400 years 
that you were of the line of David meant practically nothing at the time that Joseph and Mary were alive. They had no significant qualities about them. We know that Joseph was a carpenter and they lived in Nazareth. Nazareth was kind of like a a backwater town. They weren't uh, very impressive people. Um, he was a carpenter. Uh, I already mentioned he was a carpenter. They were not very rich. They were normal in terms of likely the age that they were marrying. It would have been probably in their teens, which is younger for us, but it was normal for them. Everything about them was relatively normal, average, ordinary. In fact, you could even make an argument that they were maybe a little worse off than your average Irvine citizen. And yet, Mary is called a favored one. Why was she so favored? What about her is is favorable? Again, the Bible doesn't really say that anything that Mary had done up until that point. It'd be one thing if you read all of how Mary was so charitable and gracious or that she did miracles or she was a prophet or, or something, but you don't get anything except her attitude when she hears this good news, when she calls herself, let it be done to me. I'm just a servant of the Lord. And that tells you everything you need to know about Mary. Ordinary, normal, typical, young woman. The most significant thing was that she considered herself a servant of the Lord. In a similar way, Joseph, again, not much about him, is said or spoken of. We have no idea why the Lord chose him and, and Mary to a certain degree, except that he was called a just man. And when the angel spoke to him, he did everything that the angel told him. He was obedient. He was submissive. He was humble. That's all you know about him. Jesus came to the sort of people that you live next door to. Or, again, more realistically, that live in the next city over. Since Nazareth was not the Irvine of Galilee. When we think of Christmas, I know we can get pretty hung up on making our homes perfect for Christmas. But I think it's helpful to remember that when Jesus was born, it wasn't to the most extraordinary or perfect or most well-lit home or anything like that. Nothing extravagant. No special meals or, or anything. They were in Bethlehem for a census. They were there because the, the, the tax man said, you need to show up at this place so that we can count you for taxes. It wasn't a particularly good reason to be in Bethlehem. It wasn't that he was wanting to travel through the the miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to see family, like we might go on Christmas Day to go, you know, be with our friends and loved ones. Nothing like that. He had to go because of tax reasons. And yet, someone at least had shown them some hospitality when there was no room for them um, in the guest room or the inn that despite maybe them not being in a place that was exactly 100% comfortable, at least someone had some clothes and a manger that a little baby could be put in. But for the most part, nothing about the first Christmas, either about the parents or the situation, was anything exciting or miraculous. In fact, it was almost overly normal for things at that time. You've got unexpected guests that's having a baby right then. You just do what you can. It's not like they had ERs and hospitals and all these things. You just, all right, let's make her comfortable. And there she's going to have her baby. Most of it was very 
very first century in, <laughs> in that part of the world. And I, I was thinking, I've had so many vacations I've planned on. I mean, I can't think of a vacation that I've been on where there was not a stressful moment, where something did not go a little bit wrong, where I wasn't being like uh, stressed by the kids or rushing from one place to another place. I mean, if, I mean, maybe it's the same with you. Or if your vacations always go like just as you plan, let me know the secret because I was thinking, I don't know that I've been on one where everything just went silky smooth. And I think when we talk then about ordinary faithfulness, what God is asking for is even when it's stressful, even when things don't go according to plan this Christmas and plans fall through, God wants us to just be thankful, faithful, be thankful when someone is helping us or when we have a chance to help someone else, thankful that it's not worse than it could have been, thankful that God um, has given us life and breath. Because that kind of ordinary faithfulness is likely the kind of life Mary and Joseph led until that fateful encounter with the angels about Christmas. They just led very normal, very faithful lives. Secondly, Jesus was worshipped by very ordinary people. And if you look at the Gospel of Luke, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen. But if you go to Luke chapter 2, you have three different ordinary people that, that encountered Jesus after he was born. And the first, of course, are the shepherds. I won't read the whole uh, story for you, but you remember that the shepherds were out in their field, and then all of a sudden an angel appears and tells them that there's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Well, the shepherds at that time, they were not the, the social elites. They were not the celebrities. They were not the ones that everyone is wondering, what's the latest shepherd fashion? Oh, what's the latest shepherd scandal? You know, no one cared about shepherds. No one was following them on, on any social media platforms or anything if they had it that day. You wouldn't care. You wouldn't think about a shepherd on any given day. You wouldn't think about shepherds. And yet an angel, on the night when Jesus was born, an angel came specifically and almost first to a group of shepherds to declare that the Messiah, the Christ, had been born into the world. They who had the lowliest jobs, those who were on the lowest of society. If you think of ordinary, they were so ordinary, even ordinary people didn't care about them. And yet those were the first to hear the good news of Jesus coming. Why? Because this good news is for the whole world. The world is mainly full of ordinary people like you and me. Normal, average, go to work, do your job, do it well, people like these shepherds. You also have an encounter in verse 25 with a man by the name of Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And comes and he encounters Jesus. His parents had come to bring him for, uh, there was a certain ritual and of purification that needed to be done. They came to the temple, and Simeon gets to see this baby Jesus. Now, Simeon is just 
a random guy. I mean, we don't know anything about him before this. He does nothing that we know of after this. This is him. This is his mention in the Bible. And from our perspective, it's just some guy. And yet, what do we know about him? He's got no backstory, no narrative, no, no prequel, nothing. Who is he? All that you know is that he was righteous, that he was devout, and that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit uses him to testify to the long-waited for Messiah. But you get this idea that, the, that he was someone who was so waiting for the redemption of Israel that like the Holy Spirit cut like a special deal with just this random guy. You are not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ. Just some random, ordinary, faithful, devout follower of the Lord. The Holy Spirit like cuts a deal with him. It's kind of an amazing thought for someone who has nothing to tell you about him. No backstory, no future story. He's just there so that you know that this very ordinary but faithful, righteous, devout man was promised by God to see the Christ. It's there for you and I to know that, 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 that him and his just daily waiting for the Lord, it was rewarded with a vision of Christ. Then you have also another person, Anna, in verse 36 of Luke chapter 2. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we have here another woman. Uh, she's called a prophetess, but it's kind of weird that that. That title is used in the Bible in a kind of unclear way. It doesn't necessarily mean a woman who prophesies like Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's used in actually somewhat unusual ways or a couple different ways. Uh, but it, it does point out this, that she was especially noticed and chosen by God. So whatever prophetess means, not sure what that meant in terms of what she did. It doesn't mean that she was prophesying because there was no prophet until John the Baptist. So there was hundreds of years of silence in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so it's not that Anna was a, a prophet filling in that gap, because there was no one until John the Baptist. So whatever it means, we can say that she was especially noticed and chosen by God. Now, if you add up the numbers, she's almost certainly over 100 years old at this time. That's why it says she was advanced in years. She lost her husband after seven years of being married. So she got married, that's when she was a virgin, and then it says she lived with him seven years, and then she, he died, and then 84 years, she was a, a widow. So, you know, she, you basically come about to she was, had to have been about uh, 100 years old at this time. So that's what you know about her. You do get a little bit of that backstory, but what's the most important thing about her is that she devoted herself to the Lord. She lived at the temple as a widow. Now, she could have gotten remarried 
and that would have been the wise thing to do because a widow in that time, you, you had no real like um, social um, safety net. If you were a widow, that meant that your primary source of supply and, and, and provision was gone. And if she didn't have any kids, which it, it sounds possible, she had no kids to take care of her, no husband, she didn't remarry, remarry. She lived completely dependent upon the Lord for 84 years of her life. She spent decades just serving the Lord, dedicating herself to the Lord, being faithful to the Lord. And that faithfulness and devotion was rewarded. That everyday faithfulness was rewarded with the opportunity to witness to Christ. Now, I know we, we, we're not going to talk about the wise men because the wise men probably came a year or more than a year after the birth of Jesus. So when you talk about those who were the first, the Bible, the, the Bible talks about the first to worship and adore Jesus, Son of God, come to earth in human flesh. You have shepherds. You have a, a man that was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And you had a woman who was 100 years old daily living in the temple. None of them were particularly extraordinary. Not one of them would you think of as some worthy person that, that is above everyone else in, in faith. And, you know, oh, this is some giant, you know, heroic spiritual figure. None of them were. They were ordinary but faithful men and women. They were just like you and me. And yet that's who God chose to worship. Jesus Christ. So Jesus was born to ordinary people. The first people to worship him, very ordinary people. But even more shocking, Jesus lived most of his life in an ordinary way. And you don't, you don't think about that necessarily because the Bible doesn't talk about it. But Think of this, if you look there, the Bible has one story about Jesus when he was 12 years old, and that's at the end of Luke. And that's the only story you get about his life, and it's when he was left behind at the temple. But I, I just want you to read the end of that section, all right? So they figured out that Jesus was, they left Jesus behind, they had to go back and get him, and they have a, a little discussion. It's all very, actually very, very interesting, fasc fascinating but look at 51 of Luke chapter 2, Luke 51, and he, that is Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then it goes to Luke chapter 3 in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar and so on. Well, Jesus starts his ministry at about 30 years, the Bible says. So from his childhood until 30 years, what did Jesus do? What is in between the white spaces in that time? He lived a normal human life, but without sin. It's kind of incredible when you really Dwell on that. It's actually very staggering to think about this. Jesus, we believe he is God in the flesh. He toiled for decades, 30 years, being normal and insignificant, ordinary. 
He almost certainly worked. He was probably as an apprentice to his father, Joseph, who was a carpenter. So that's where you get that idea that Jesus was probably a, a carpenter, even though the Bible doesn't say that explicitly. But there's no reason to think Jesus didn't do what every normal kid did, what every ordinary child did, which is to become an apprentice in the trade of your father, follow the footsteps of your parents. Now, Joseph doesn't seem to be alive by the time Jesus starts his ministry, so at some point his dad died, and so he would have certainly helped to take care of his mother and probably his siblings as well. He had brothers and sisters. In fact, just think about this. Jesus had cousins and neighbors. He had customers. That's what we mean by he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. That means neighbors, friends, people who came into his carpentry workshop asking for different items. And he lived faithfully and ordinary during that time. That is a, a, a tremendous, again, staggering thought. I, I think that, that dignifies so much of what we think is ordinary and mundane. Just imagine, this is eternal infinite God having to wait 30 years to do something. You know what I mean? Imagine God having to wash clothes, do dishes, take care of younger siblings, go to work, do chores, deal with grumpy people. It's almost ludicrous to wrap your mind around a thought like that. But Jesus had to live on this earth walk in our shoes, go through what we go through, and yet without sin, in order to have a perfectly faithful, righteous, ordinary life that he could then substitute for us. When he sheds his blood on the cross, it is pure, perfect, ordinary blood, sinless, and yet very much just human. And by faith in him and his blood shed for us, we can exchange our sinful and cursed and selfish life for his pure and perfect, faithful and ordinary, you could say, life. And so now we can say if God calls us to be Christians, that we can glorify God with our ordinary lives too. God only uses ordinary but faithful Look through the Bible. You can say that about every single one, including Jesus himself. God has always been looking for the everyday faith of ordinary people. It's what Jesus exemplified. Think about it. He exemplified for more years of his life ordinary daily faithfulness than the three years he spent teaching and doing miracles. I'm not trying to diminish that, of course. The Gospels are all about that. But you think in proportion of his life, he spent more years doing what we do every day without sin. And that fills me with a lot of hope that I can be faithful to the Lord too. It's not just those who are teaching and doing miracles or something. Jesus spent so much more time sinlessly listening to his parents, sinlessly doing his work, sinlessly dealing with his neighbors and his siblings and his friends, sinlessly navigating 
life with a, a, a Roman, oppressive, persecuting government, sinlessly talking and sharing life with people. I mean, I, I know you and I are not sinless, but it gives us uh, an ability to say, well, you know, Jesus did it, so he can call me to do it too. I'm not going to, I'm not perfect, but he can call me to it because that's what he did. It's 30 years of his life. It's an amazing testimony, testimony that normal, faithful, humble, almost nondescript, not noticeable background characters can worship God and honor him, just like the shepherds, just like Anna, just like Simeon, just like Mary, just like Joseph. Corey ten Boom was an ordinary woman that God used in extraordinary ways. Maybe you've heard of her, but um, she uh, lived in Holland with her watchmaking father. They had a relatively normal, ordinary life there in Holland as her, uh, her father made watches, and she started to learn that trade as well. And then World War II struck, and Holland and the Dutch people fell under Nazi uh, control. And she was 50 when she began to offer her family home as a safe house for Jews. In 1944, that house was raided. And while they didn't find the six people they had illegally hidden, in the house, they did arrest, the Gestapo arrested Corey, her father, her siblings, and nephews, and sent them to a concentration camp. This is one testimony of hers during that time. She said, when I was in a concentration camp during World War II, and you can hear this, you can go to YouTube and hear her give this testimony, I'm just quoting it, we had to stand every day for two or three hours for roll call often in the icy cold wind. Once a woman guard used these hours to demonstrate her cruelty. I could hardly bear to see and hear what happened in front of me. Suddenly, a skylark started to sing high in the sky. We all looked up, and when I looked to the sky and listened to its song, I looked still higher and thought, Psalm 103, verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Suddenly, I saw that this love of God was a greater reality than the cruelty that I experienced myself and saw around me. There in that concentration camp, Corey and her sister Betsy shared the gospel with other Christians using a small, smuggled-in Bible. December 16, 1944, her beloved sister Betsy died in the camp. On Christmas Day, nine days later, Corey received an order of release, which later, after she got out, later it was discovered that it was due to a clerical error. Before Betsy died, she told Corey, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. These were regular women and men. Betsy, Corey, they were not looking to be heroes. They're not looking for God to use them in some extraordinary fashion. They hadn't made some pledge to go to the furthest flung regions of the earth to share the gospel. They were just faithful in the most normal and ordinary sense. But those are the kind that God chooses to use. Who knows what extraordinary times the Lord might bring us through. 
All I know is that he needs the ordinary and faithful to do his will. When we say it's a Christmas miracle, maybe all that needs to mean this year is that when the turkey gets burnt, we don't curse everyone out, blame the kids, kick the dog. Maybe instead we thank God that no one was hurt, that the Chinese place is open, and at least we get to be together as a family. A Christmas miracle might be you being the one to calm everyone down when everyone is talking about politics instead of aggravating it and making it worse. Maybe that would be a Christmas miracle. Maybe that would be more faithful and more ordinary. Maybe the Christmas miracle is just inviting some folks over who don't have anywhere to be or going to visit someone who can't leave their home. Just be faithful where you are. That's all that the Lord has ever called us to. If Jesus could do that for 30 years, he's Jesus. Does he waste his time? If Jesus doesn't waste his time, that means every minute and hour and day and year in that 30-year time was important and meaningful. And most of it was filled with the same kind of things you and I still do now. What a glory there is then to say that I can be faithful and to the Lord, I can be doing something very extraordinary by faith right where I am. If the Lord chooses to use you in some more significant way, that's up to him. But there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to do something crazy in order to be truly spiritual or Christian. God uses the ordinary. And so I hope that you have a very ordinary Christmas this year as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, dignifying our suffering and our sorrows, dignifying what might seem mundane, a road trip and going to vacation to meet family or staying at home and and just enjoying um, the kids, being sick in the hospital or, or at home. All of these moments that seem like, how are we doing anything for you? Yet, Lord, you ordain that we might just show an everyday, normal kind of faithfulness. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we would see the glory in those small moments, that we we have a choice, that we could make a situation uh, more glorifying to you, or we could make it more about us, or more about our sufferings and sorrows, that we have at any, in every moment, a chance to make it a faith-filled moment. So thank you, Lord, for the parties. Thank you, Lord, for the get-togethers. Thank you, Lord, for the lights and for the gifts and the presents. All of it can be used by us, your children, to worship you, to glorify you. But it only happens when we're trusting in the consolation of Israel, in the one who brings hope to the world, in the one who died and rose again to make us children of God. That the 30 years he spent living that perfect but normal life was so that he could die a perfect death for imperfect people. So, Lord, thank you for that message and that hope this Christmas season. I pray that you would bless it and that our hearts would be full, knowing that you have done the greatest thing that we could ever imagine. You've given us the greatest gift. So how could we not be happy and joyful and and give to others? So thank you, Lord, for this season. Thank you for each one here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.